Today's episode is brought to you by Zenium HR. The demands of HR and payroll are endless, and that's why Zenium provides a complete solution for both so you can focus on what you do best, which is growing your organization. Learn more about Zenium at zeniumhr.com. Okay, it's Brandon Laws, your host. I'm back with another episode today. Uh, I did miss last week during the holidays, and um, I apologize for that. I do have tons of material recorded, but I always take off a couple weeks at the end of the year and just decided to, you know, I'm just not going to release one this week. So sorry for the break. It was sort of unexpected. I did have one planned, but kind of pushing everything out one week. But we're back at it today. I've got Jane Finette on the podcast today. She's the author of Unlocked, How Empowered Women Empower Women. And we're talking about the unique role of women leaders in today's workplace and what the trends are and how we can continue to support and develop these amazing women. So check this out. You're going to love it. I had a great conversation. Loved talking with Jane. Enjoy the episode. Reach out to me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, any of those places. I'm, I'd be happy to connect with you. Love to hear from listeners about how they're liking the show. And of course, I'd love to hear what you want to learn about too. I've got tons of great stuff coming, but I want to hear what, what's important to you too. So feel free to reach out to me there and, and let me know what you think. Have a great week. Happy New Year. Make it a good one. Jane, it's a pleasure to have you on Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. It's just wonderful to be with you today, Brandon. You wrote an amazing book. I, I really loved it, honestly. It's called Unlocked, How Empowered Women Empower Women. And it may be weird coming from a guy saying like how much he loved this book, but I've worked, I think I told you offline a little bit, I've worked with a majority of women in the organization. I know what the power is of women-led organizations and just women feeling empowered. So I'm glad you're on the show. Well, I thank you for having me and thank you for reading the book and being such a an ally to women everywhere as well. I'm happy to. So I know, you know, for a lot of people, I, we, I don't think we need to go back in history because I think we know how far behind women have been as far as just in the society and the workplace, all that. But it, Early in the book, you said that the 90s changed the conversation for women's empowerment. I wanted to ask you why you think that was. Yeah, I mean, um, so I think, and I, you know, I, I put myself in this bucket actually, was that, uh, well, I think there was more of a spotlight. There was more, uh, more women starting to come into more leadership positions and realizing that they were the onlys. But at the same time, we saw the advancement of, you know, of the online world. We actually got a lot smaller, of course, as a, as a, as a globe. And so we could see that the discrepancies were not only happening in America or the UK or Latin America, but, you know, across the world. And so it was, it was a moment in time where women could come together and share experiences, share their strategies, and uh, really start to begin to support each other in a distributed and decentralized way. And we know the power of the internet for all its, for all its good and its bad, uh, but I do believe that was part of the, of the cultural shift. 
it does feel like the internet has kind of lifted all women across the world. But I, I would even think for you know these smaller countries or even underdeveloped countries around the world, women have been able to rise up a little bit. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, they definitely have. I mean, they're still lagging. Uh, I know I used to work uh, with Mitchell Baker, the co-founder of Mozilla. I've worked with her for many years, and she was on the UN's Council for Women's Economic Empowerment and was the voice, obviously, sort of of the internet. When we look to the key of women's economic empowerment in the developing world, much of that centered on access to technology, whether that was you know having access to the internet or a mobile phone. And we know that they're still uh, still behind as well with access. Um, often it's the, the man and the household that will have the most access to the mobile phone and so on. But it is changing. And then we also see in a lot of developing countries as well where, you know, there's just very different cultural uh, norms and so on. So women don't always leave the house and so on, you know. But when they can sit and work from home <laughs> and don't actually have to go out and so on, then there's so many more opportunities and in the global sphere as well. Yeah, that's the interesting thing about the internet is it allows you to access opportunities that you otherwise couldn't in a regional space. And I, I mean, worldwide, that's going to be a game changer for women, I think. It, it is. It's so interesting. Yeah, I, in, in my book, I talk about an incredible woman founder in Afghanistan. Yeah, I love that story. Uh, her name is Resha Feroshi. She founded the first coding school for girls in Herat. Uh, she was a, a refugee, born a refugee, and um, moved back to Afghanistan when the Taliban fell originally in 2001. She would say, you know, um, she was drawn to the internet as a young woman because nobody would look at your papers. You didn't need a passport. You didn't need to show anybody anything. You could just quietly go about your business. And she started teaching herself to code. She studied online and ended up doing a degree in computer science and even doing a master's in Berlin in Germany. It was her key to freedom and empowerment. And she wanted that for many, many more girls within, within the country. Yeah, that, that story right there is a perfect example of why you named your book Unlocked. Because with no, I'm not going to give all the credit to the internet, but it's a, it's definitely helped a lot is the internet has empowered people and unlocked talent that people didn't know they, they had. So women like the woman in Afghanistan, maybe she didn't know that she could be a, an amazing coder and empower other women and other uh, women coders uh, across the world. And that's just... That's incredible. It really is, yes. And one of my favorite uh, outcomes of Fareshda's work was the young girls who she's, uh, you know, she, who are graduating from her program. They're going on to earn maybe double and triple what the uh, the head of the household and their families was earning. And uh, so it's it's wonderful. And of course, it's been it's been terrifically hard also in these last months to see, you know, the very very big change that happened in Afghanistan. And sadly, the school closed. Um, that they're working to to get it back up and get it back online, as we've just been talking about. So hoping that the internet uh, comes through once again for them. I'm going to show my ignorance with this next question, but I thought it was a great point you made in the book, especially when you added context to it. So I think one issue that has prevented women from rising in the workplace has to do with 
homophilia. And I hopefully I, I said that correctly. Yes, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I'd never heard of that that concept before, that definition. But can you explain what that is and what you meant by, you know, women not being able to rise because of that? I'll do, I'll do my best because I'd also <laughs> not heard of it too, Brandon. And so I have to credit uh, an incredible professor. And she, uh, I, got, I got the fantastic opportunity to, to interview her at the London School of Business. And the conversation was about networking. That was kind of where we'd begun uh, discussing. And she uh, had been an expert and had started really following and and trying to understand uh, what was getting in the way of women in the workplace. And uh, her name is, uh, sorry, I should say, I've just realized, is Herminia Ibarra. Uh, That's the professor's name. So she started studying women in networks in the late 80s. And then this has become her expertise. This is really what she uh, spends her professional uh, research career doing. And she said that why women weren't rising was because, as you are more than aware, and I'm sure if you're listening, uh, this will not be a surprise to you, um, that women are amazing at creating relationships and connections. We're brilliant at it. We are just born connectors, but we actually make, we have different kinds of relationships than our gentlemen colleagues. Um, So we will build very often within organizations, uh, very strong relationships within the organizations that we work in. And we shy away from building more what you might call more strategic relationships. We might, as, a, as women, uh, call those transactional relationships. And so we're, it doesn't feel good to us and we, we don't do it. Men, on the other hand, don't take that quite so seriously and also um, will build relationships, strong relationships with people in their own settings, just as we do with ours. So the homophily piece is having relationships and connections with people who look like you, talk like you, have similar interests to you. So it's like on the golf course or in the, the yes. cigar and scotch club or whatever. It it's is. Like men, men networking with men. <laughs> and we do too. We are also guilty of it as women. But the trouble is, and thankfully things are changing, but back when Himania started her research was that, of course, the only people in the boardroom and in the executive suite were men. And so they looked like one another and they were not, not about to go and bring someone else in because they didn't look like them. They didn't, they didn't have this other connection beyond work where, you know, where there weren't so many points of connection. So that is one of the keys actually in, in my book is that uh, we must help women build more connections and networks because when they leave a, a role, they will very often have to start to build a network once again. And with men, because of this, as you said, the golf club, they'll meet, they'll go out, they'll do things and work and pleasure are intermixed, you know, interspersed. And um, so they have very large, strong networks and women don't have them quite at the same level. So it's something we have to work harder to do. Yeah. And, and if those those groups of people aren't intermixing, then you miss out on the little bits of information and, and gossip. I hate saying that word necessarily, but like, but there's pieces of information that are really vital to the success of somebody in a leadership role. So if they're not, you know, men and women aren't intermixing with, with their hobbies or whatever and networking, I, I can see where that could be detrimental to the growth of women. Yes. And, you know, so things are changing. Things are changing. We have more women in senior positions. We have more examples. We have more yeah. connective tissue and our own homophily and so <laughs> on. So um, it definitely, you know, we have much more uh, positive 
momentum happening, uh, although, you know, we have a long way to go, of course, but, uh, but it is changing. Yeah. So let's go back to the root cause of a lot of this and why there might be a, a lack of supply of women workers and, and just women leaders in general. So you, you wrote that many girls across the world aren't getting the same level of education as their male counterparts. So why is that? And then what does it do to the overall supply of women workers and leaders? And I imagine it affects their earning power too. So just maybe talk about that holistically and how it's all rooted in the education. Yeah, thank you. It's um, So I have to tell you, Brandon, too. So this is my first book as well. So I'm the first time author. So um, and I lost myself in the research, just completely. And I thought, my God, this is going to be an. I could tell they was well researched, and that you cited cited so many experts, and there are so many stories. So I, I actually appreciated that. Oh, thank you, thank you for saying. But I thought at one point it was going to be an eleven volume book that no one was ever going to read. Encyclopedia of women empowerment. <laughs> oh yes, and we'll keep writing the volumes, you know, it's, uh, until we're done. Sorry, I say it because you're right. Like the interconnectedness of so many of the reasons why we're still working on equity, still trying to work towards equity and equality. So when it comes to education, can you believe 32 million girls did not go to school today? And that wasn't because they didn't want to. And in fact, the Malala Fund um, also put out a report earlier this year saying that they expect another up to 20 million more girls will not go to school in addition to those because of the global pandemic. So things might start to return to normal, but there'll be many, many more girls who just have lost the opportunity. And it's a lot to unpack, but everything from obviously girls are not in some parts of the world are not deemed as important as their, as their brothers. Um, so they uh, put to work right away and they don't, don't actually get to go to school at all. Um, to, and I think these are where the, the heartbreaking points come in, fears of sexual violence, uh, both on the way to school and in school, if you can believe that. The number of sexual assaults in school in the developing world for girls is is astronomical. Likewise, girls not having uh, access to sanitary products and sanitary facilities still means that a week in the month, every, you know, every month, girls don't go to school because there's no way for them to do that in a, in a healthy way and many, many more reasons. And yet we know that when girls go to school and they are literate, that they, a child infant mortality will, will drop. Um, mothers dying in childbirth uh, decreases massively because they can read and they can understand and they can participate, right, and understand. Even I was uh, talking with Tammy Tibbetts. She's the founder of an organization called She's the First that works with girls and young women who are the first in their family to go to school, which is extraordinary. And they've been learning uh, how to, particularly they work in Latin America, learning um, how to read and speak Spanish, which is many of them speak in their native languages, but a lot of the literature is in Spanish, you, you might imagine. Um, so they've the girls were actually um, translating to their families all about the pandemic. So they'd get flyers, you know, but a lot of them were indigenous populations that didn't speak Spanish. So these girls have, have, are doing a service for their entire communities by being able to translate health information and things like this. So um, 
And then you look at USAID, who says that, um, I mean, crazy numbers again, but by 2025, if women and girls were empowered, that would add another $25 trillion to global GDP. Oh, my goodness. You know, this is not just a the right thing to, it is the right thing to do, mind, but yeah, heck, right. you know, like there is a lot of possibility and opportunity for everybody when women and girls are empowered. Yes. There's a, an amazing quote from Melinda Gates that you put in the book, and I had to bring it up and I want you to unpack it for us. So the quote says, if you invest in a girl, she becomes a woman and she invests in everyone else, end quote. Tell, tell me what you think about that quote and why you put it in your book. Oh, and thank you for sharing it back to me. And actually, you gave me goosebumps reading it. <laughs> I know, it, it, me too. Well, and uh, again, I mean, back to the developing world, but I don't think the men and women who are listening to us right now will will disagree that women women give back into their communities again and again. The, the stats for the developing world is that women will give more than 90% of what they receive back into their families and communities. So whether that was the food they grew, whether that was knowledge, um, whether that was the money that they earned, they pour that back into their communities and their families. For men, it's about 41%, uh, just for just for reference. Oh my gosh. Quite a big um, difference there. Something I've coined and I do talk about it in the book quite a bit is sort of like I call them, women are build flywheel systems. Um, and what I mean by that is what, yeah, when you empower one woman, you empower another and another because she will continue to give back into into. There's a multiplier effect. There to it. is. There is. You know, I Stephen Sondheim passed away in this last week, yes, and um, it was terribly sad. And what an incredible life! And uh, you know, the gifts he's given us all. But I was listening to an interview on NPR about him, and one apparently one of his favorite lyrics was, "It's about the ripple, not the sea." And I just, gosh, I've just gravitated to this quote. I'm telling everybody about it, actually, because I just think that that is so true. You know, it's sort of like it's one woman, it's one act. And yet, you know, we know what ripple effects will, you know, have the potential to create. And um, and so, yes, another ripple appears and is formed and uh, impacts another. Um, and that is indeed how we make the sea. Um, we know how to do, women know this at their core we already create flywheel systems. I just want us to get that flywheel turning much faster than we do today. So speaking of ripples, have there been any movements that have sparked empowerment of women at work? Sorry, that's a great question. And you know what I'm thinking when you said specifically for women at work, I would have to go to Sheryl Sandberg, of course. That's what I was thinking too. Almost yeah, but, 10 well, years ago. Is it like it a, not is it the lean in movement? Is that what you would call it? It is. And you know, it's incredibly controversial. Uh, it was at the time. I remember I was Why? an entrepreneur. Why? Well, it was, you know, sort of like, well, women have been leaning in for years and it's not always our job to do. It is the other people in positions of power and influence and privilege who are preventing us from <laughs> also joining those ranks, you know. So it was sort of like there was a lot of contention about this. And especially as, you know, with Sheryl Sandberg, who's COO of Facebook, who had several nannies, I think, at the time. And, you know, so oh, she was not exactly living a, you know, a normal life, you might say. She's not struggling like most women. Yeah. And and yet, I mean, I, I actually have a lot of respect for Sheryl Sandberg. And especially she, uh, she also wrote There's No Plan B. I don't know if anyone has read that. But 
you know, she lost her husband very early, tragically, and um, I, I really appreciate what she does. I interviewed Rachel Thomas, the executive director of Lean In, for the for the book, and we talked Good. quite a bit. And I, I mean, the work that Lean In has done uh, about creating connections. They have these things called Lean In circles, which are small, decentralized groups of women being in the workplace, being able to be in support of one another. I think has done an incredible, incredible job. I think there's like tens of thousands of these circles now around the world. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Well, it's like controversial or not, at least it's getting people talking and, and networks are starting to bubble up. So if anything, it's bringing more people into the conversation and I'm happy about that. Yes, yes, absolutely. I completely uh, agree with you. And we definitely need more of those movements. We do. There's an incredible woman too. Her name is Sally uh, Hegelson. And in fact, she is the the woman who coined the phrase diversity and inclusion. You know, she is the lady who is attributed to our awakening about being able to take this, of course, incredibly uh, seriously in our our working lives and everywhere else. And she um, says that we, we shouldn't focus on lean in, we should focus on lean on and that as women leaning on each other is the best thing that we can do and i do believe the current manifestation of lean in is actually really about lean on (laughs) i want to talk about the last 20 months of covid19 because i think it's impacted women a lot and i want i'll tell you a little story about me personally and hopefully it doesn't reflect poorly on me but it's just the circumstances that a lot of families find them in i have two young kids and with the pandemic, we had to pull them out of school, obviously, and, and do the homeschool thing. My wife worked barely part-time at the time. And so by default, she ended up basically having to quit her job and help the kids through homeschool. And she, I mean, she wanted to become a teacher. So it was, it was sort of like a good fit. I mean, she already works with kids as her normal job anyways. And by the way, she's back working at a preschool. So she's back working, but those last, uh, the last year and a half has been challenging because she's stayed home with the kids, probably not doing exactly what she would want to be doing normally. And I can't help but to think other women across the world found themselves in the same situation where they basically lost a year and a half of their working life. Can you respond to that and what your thoughts are? Oh, well, uh, Brian, yes, so much, actually. And um, thank you for sharing. And I'm so sorry. And also, you know, I do, I, before I speak more, I just want to say, so this is just not easy on all of the family. I mean, yet your wife taking that decision has been the decision of many women. But also as, as the husband, if you might say, not something you wanted to see either. You know, it's not, not a decision you wish she had to take. No, I I felt terrible. I mean, the silver lining. I was I've been working remotely doing that whole time, and so I've had moments with my kids that I've never been able to have in working in the office. So I felt like I was able to be there a little bit, but I feel I feel so terrible for her. But it was a decision we made together, and I find that a lot of families had to do the same thing. And it's just it, it's fallen on women for the most part, and it's so frustrating. It is. Yes, I I um you know the, there was a saying that was going around a few. Uh, months ago, which was, uh, and sorry to be controversial, but it was like other countries have um, social systems when, you know, there are bad times. America has women because we're the ones that have to pick, pick up the pieces. Yeah. And if you are, you are a mom and you're working part time or you're, um, you know, still struggling to get into a leadership position. <laughs> so you're not earning as much as your husband and you're still a mom, then yeah, like the economics just don't work. And you're the one who, who ends up having to put other priorities first. And 
the most working mothers in the workforce in 2019, more than 10 million young mothers in the workforce. By the hundreds of thousands, they have dropped out of the workforce. There's, I, you probably see this, of course, uh, about the great resignation. That's the, the buzzwords, of course. Yeah, oh, it's, it's real. It's it, real, let it, me tell it you is, but women are, But it's not because they want to. You know, it's because they've been forced out of the workforce in many, many situations. And sadly, as someone was asking me to comment on what is happening now. Well, sorry. And the other piece was that, you know, there are many women who are employed in the consumer service business. So they work in shops, they work in restaurants. They These were all of the places that shut down, of course, and during lockdown. And yes, there's more reopening and we see women going back to work and so on. But within those roles and then elsewhere as well, as they come back and it's the same when women have had children and come back to work, they're going to come back to a smaller paycheck and they're not necessarily going to come back to the same level as well and then get penalized for being a working mother. So I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer, but it it's is the reality. It, it is sadly. And um, I know there are a lot of great workplaces that recognize this and they're doing so much to be flexible and to really honor the mothers who are just the most extraordinary leaders, right? I mean, yes. like who, I mean, you yourself, Brandon, too, like negotiating with a two-year-old, like to go to bed, like you're some of the greatest, <laughs> greatest salespeople in the world, you know, right. are parents. So um, yeah. I don't mean to be flippant, but you know, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of good, good stuff happening too. Yeah. I'm really hoping because of the last 20 months has been a, a reflection for for a lot of organizations and and families and i hope there's like this pent-up demand for women-led organizations that like we have this like women-led boom coming out of the pandemic so i'm, I'm hopeful for that so let's compare women-led organizations to men-led organizations and just the differences that come out of uh, of those types of organizations uh, like I, I told you offline i've i've worked for zenium which is the company i work for for 13 years and it's women-led um i'm on a senior leadership team with um four i think it's four or five women and i'm the only male within our company on the senior leadership team and it's it's amazing to have an organization led by women. And I, I just don't think a lot of organizations get that opportunity. What's the data say about this? Mm. Or or just anecdotally, if you know, like, what's what are the benefits of, of each? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I think what we want really is diversity. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I mean, women do run very different organizations. They tend to build very different businesses as well. Um, I think women are, are definitely more kind of purpose aligned. If they're going to be an entrepreneur, they're definitely following, uh, you know, what they care deeply about. We see a lot of women founders in the service business and the caring business and the people business. I mean, we see some things in the press recently, but we'll see, you know, Spanx just became a billion dollar. Yes. Company, Sarah right? Blakely is amazing. Yeah, she's a rock star. And yeah. what did she do? She gave everyone a ten thousand dollar check and a first class plane tickets. You know, that's I that video because I think it was recorded. That gave me chills when I watched. <laughs> that. 
right. <laughs> it was floating around on LinkedIn. I could not help it to like almost have some like a teary eyed moment. That was pretty crazy. Yeah. So I just think, you know, women will see, I mean, and of course I'm massively generalizing here, but they, they, you know, they tend to be much more people focused and, you know, so their teams are, there's more retention, there's more engagement, maybe not always building uh, the biggest companies, you know, don't always have aspirations to go IPO, not like um, Whitney Wolf heard um, with, oh goodness, now I've blanked on the name of her company, but she just went IPO, uh, Bumble. It was just a oh, dating yeah. app for yes. women, right? Yeah, also billion, $1.2, $1.3 billion IPO, good for her. Um, women will tend to build smaller and highly profitable organizations as well. But back to what I first started saying is though, for me, you know, we're, we are going to build extraordinary businesses with excellent and incredible impact when all voices are sitting around the table and different backgrounds, different experiences, ages, all different types of people we need to do the work which is so needed in our world. Yeah, I agree with that. It's like even around the board, like for a larger company, you need to have diversity of of people, like whether it's women, men, uh, different races. Of color. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And we'd be fools not to, right? Do we want to be blindsided? Do we want to have tunnel vision? It's just, yeah, there, and there is a lot of evidence for, you know, now behind the creativity and innovation and the bottom line, uh, for, uh, for diverse groups as well. So we'd kind of be fools not to. So you wrote in the book that women owned businesses contribute to the good of the economy. I think that relates really back to like women, uh, tend to give back to their communities and empower other women. And it just kind of trickles, uh, ripples, as you said earlier. <laughs> so that seems like the missing part in this equation is how do we get more women-owned businesses? How does, is it society that helps women achieve this? Is it government uh, funding? Is it uh, private equity funding? Like what, wh- what is it that would help unlock this, uh, this idea of like having women own more businesses? Yeah. Well, and when, thank you so much for the question. I'm super passionate about this and, you know, the fastest growing kind of group in air quotes, uh, of entrepreneurs in America is black women. And I think we can unpack that with, you know, why are black women <laughs> founding businesses? Maybe because they, you know, have, they meet a lot of challenges in the workplace to advance. So they check out and say, actually, I can do this and I'm going to do it. And they do. The, the kick is how to get these businesses to grow. And so instead of being a one person solo entrepreneur or maybe a small business with maybe 10, 20 employees, is it how do we create opportunities for women to really grow impactful thousand, thousand person organizations? And that does come into the investment funding piece. So um, women uh, before the pandemic had something like 2.8% of all venture capital invested in their companies. And then last year was 2.3%. So, you know, it's, um, it's diabolical. And I think it is in part because women are building these very different businesses. They don't fit the venture capital model because they don't all want to go IPO and float in the stock market and make a bajillion dollars. Some do but they do not get the funding because women are uh, as entrepreneurs. Yeah. And then we're back to homophily where people who have a lot of money tend to be gentlemen. And so they will invest in people who look like them, talk like them, et cetera. And so it feels risky. And so that doesn't happen. 
However, what we are seeing are more, more people are aware of this now. There are more funds. There are more women-led investment companies. Um, there are lots of ways for us also to get involved looking at organizations like C-Note with a capital C, C-Note. You can actually invest in C-Note yourself. So you can come in an investor and they uh, pour your hard-earned cash into what they call CDIs. And these are community development organizations. So if you're a small business owner in Detroit or Michigan or wherever you might be across America, Portland, and you're a woman or a minority in business, then most likely you could go to CDI and get small business funding. So there is a growing trend of uh, spotlights being put on uh, helping uh, women and particularly people of color uh, get started, which is, it is a great step. And there's a lot more to be done because there's a lot of great businesses to be built by awesome people who don't have a voice right now. Speaking of getting things done, so the second part of your book covers 10 keys to unlocking the potential of all women. So I think that's that part's going to be really helpful for these listeners who want to like take a deep dive into your work and figure out how they can really empower women and get others to empower women. Maybe highlight a few of those things that you think would make the most impact. Just give a little little teaser of like what people can expect out of that. Yeah, that, thank you so much. And um, well, two that uh, two of my favorites and two that, that come to mind, and I think particularly obviously as well, we're, we're uh, talking here together about the workplace. Uh, one is Send the Elevator Down. And that has that's the title of the, the key. Uh, and I think people who have heard a bunch about women's empowerment maybe have, have heard this phrase before. What it means is when you have reached a position of influence, and that does not mean you are the CEO, it could be your manager, your project manager, uh, and so on, that you help someone else get an opportunity. Lean In and McKinsey issue a women in the workplace study every year. And so they'll, they'll put out, you know, what is the increase in women vice presidents? What is the increase of women CEOs? And they do all of this research. The one number that they put out, which has not changed in the last six years, is the number of first-time women leaders. So these are first-time women managers. So for every 100 men, there are 85 young women who become a first-time manager. Uh, when you look at uh, Latino women, that's only 71 out of 100. And for Black women, that's only 58. So one of the most important things we can do within our organizations is ensure that our incredible young women get the chance to become managers as uh, in equal measure as our, as our male counterparts, and particularly our women of color and on our teams as well. So really wanting to just like, let's dig in, let's understand who are the ones that are going to become first-time managers. That's one of the most significant things you can do because that builds over time, right? So by the time they're ready to be a VP, you're just simply going to have less women because they didn't have the same break as the young man at the time. And then the other piece, I just have to tell you this one, it's sort of in the workplace, but sort of not. But it's my, it is my favorite key. And we were just talking about money a little bit with investing, but uh, it's key number five, which is actually talk about money. Mm, yeah. So women are, uh, and again, I know I'm generalizing, but we're generally sort of bad at talking about money. I think our younger generations are getting better at they it. They are, yeah. But we still struggle a, a ton. Women tend to be savers. Um, we're not investors, um, mainly because a lot of the investment products are not aimed at women either. Starting conversations, whether you are a man or a woman, um, with another woman in your life about money 
Ooh, feels tabooed saying that out loud even, but um, the is one of the most courageous things you can do because women will not ask for raises. We will not ask for what we're worth. We earn 81 cent on the dollar and uh, we are two thirds more likely to retire into poverty because we are not so comfortable talking about money. And we all know that whoever owns, has the most money gets to decide what's most important, what problems are worth solving. Women need to be at that table deciding who gets to choose what problems we fix. Um, yeah. Actually talk about money. I know it's it's awkward, but we'll We'll do it. I love those action items. I appreciate that. And for people who want to know the all 10 of them, definitely get Jane's book. It's great. Let's wrap up with this. Uh, You're working on uh, the Coaching Fellowship, which I believe is a nonprofit. Talk a little bit about that. And for me too, uh, tell me more about what you're up to. And you know, if people can get involved, maybe there's an opportunity there, but I'd love to hear more about it. Thank you. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to share more as well. And you're right, we're a nonprofit. I founded the Coaching Fellowship about seven years ago. We've been a 501c3 nonprofit for uh, five, five and a half years. Um, and what we do is we, uh, we work with young women social change leaders all around the world and give them access to leadership development and coaching. So, of course, you know, um, I'm sure you're listening on the the podcast and know um, that coaching and leadership development is something that our executives have, should have, and many, many more people actually within our organizations. But if you're a young woman in the social impact space, so that means you work in a nonprofit or you founded a nonprofit or you're a social impact entrepreneur and activist, um, you really do not have the chance to have that happen. And yet, the younger we are when we have access to ourselves, our full selves, uh, means that our impact can be greater. And boy, these young women that we work with are extraordinary. They work with indigenous populations in the Amazon. They're rehabilitating child soldiers. They are working on climate crisis, inner city community programs and organizing. I mean, they're, we work in more than 70 countries. And so it's, um, it's, it's been a, it's my life's work uh, next to the book, Brandon. And they, we've put about 1300 women through the programs now. And so they also form the Women's Impact Alliance, which is really the only place that women of impact have as a place for community and leadership going forward. And yeah, if people want to learn more, get involved, easily search for the Coaching Fellowship or tcfs.org. I know maybe some of you are coaches, so we're always looking for coach volunteers. And um, this is a cheeky ask, but if you are also looking for a a gift to make at the end of the year, um, we'd certainly be really grateful if you might consider helping some of these incredible young women social uh, change leaders. Well, we'll keep up the great work, Jane. It's amazing. We'll put links to the coaching fellowship and in the book too. We'll put it in the show notes for, for listeners to easily click on and, and find their way to you. But uh, my guest today has been Jane Finette. Jane, such a pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. Again, keep up the great work and thanks for coming on the show. Massive. Thank you, Brandon, for everything. 